All right. The only um, other announcements, just to review everybody, we have Sunday School Promotion this Sunday, the 18th. Then next week we have Men's Prayer Breakfast. Rick Miller, who is a, um, we sent out some information on him. I think it went out to the church. Um, he is a, a Texas state representative, gives a good update on what's going on in terms of legislation and other things politically in the state at the men's prayer breakfast Saturday morning, August the 24th from 7.30 until 9 in the morning. And then that Sunday night we're going to have uh, retired ambassador uh, Yoram Edinger. He was the Israeli consul general for the southwest here in Houston back in the 80s. And has, uh, I mean, he's just a remarkable guy. Uh, he's got so much to, to uh, communicate. We'll have some Q&A with him as well as a couple of other little features on the night of uh, Sunday, August the 25th. So we should have a good crowd. It's one we've invited many members in the Jewish community to attend as well. So it's going to be interesting to see how this comes across. This is the first in a couple of different things I've planned uh, inviting the Jewish community. The next one's going to be October 17th. I don't know where that's going to be yet. That's going to be more of a teenage, 16 to 25-year-old targeted event. Uh, and then the same uh, lady who comes in, and she really works with mostly college-age, high school-age uh, Jewish uh, girls and young ladies to motivate them to be uh, more supportive of Israel. Why? She's going to come in. She was a, She's actually a Filipino Christian. Uh, she's not Jewish, and it's unusual for a Christian to be working in that kind of capacity for a Jewish organization. But she's finishing up her, deg- her degree in Jewish studies at Moody Bible Institute and being mentored by um, Michael Rydelnik. And so she is uh, quite quite impressive. So we're going to have a, teen- uh, a young people's function on Thursday, the 17th of October, and then we will have an adult-oriented uh, training session or teaching session on that Sunday, which will be the 20th. So that'll be a great, great weekend as well, just to let you know uh, some things that are coming uh, coming up. Do I not have that turned on? I guess not. Okay, those are the basic, uh, basic announcements. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we usually have a few moments of silent prayer, so everyone can make sure they're in fellowship and ready to study the word. Scripture teaches that when we sin, we break fellowship with God, that we are enjoying fellowship. It's an ongoing active concept in Scripture. It's not just being in fellowship. It's more of an active. What was that? Uh, screens are already out. I turned them off. Um, it's an active concept, enjoying fellowship. It's relational, and that is breached or broken, hindered when we, when we uh, sin. 
So we have to confess our sins, and instantly we're forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness, restored to fellowship, so we can resume our spiritual growth. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we have this time to be refreshed by your word. In all of the details of life, we often seem overwhelmed as things go different from the way we planned, as things go against our hopes and our expectations. As we face all of the vicissitudes of life, we pray that we might do so in the power of God, the Holy Spirit, and standing firmly upon your word. And Father, we're thankful that we have your word to turn to, to illuminate our thinking, help us understand reality as you created it, not as we wish it were created. And we pray that as we continue our study here in Romans 9, especially in these uh, very difficult passages to understand, very controversial passages, that we might be able to think clearly and rightly handle your word of truth. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Before we get started, I had a nice email that came in the other day. I get these every now and then, but I particularly appreciated this one. <clears throat> and it's from a man up in uh, Missouri, I believe. Isn't that right, Barb? Missouri? Uh, Pastor Dean, I don't know if you get emails like this one, but I want to thank you for your devotion to uh, the Word of God for, equip, for the equipping of God's people. I hope you do get these emails, but I know that you may not. Of course, it's one that's addressed. It's my email. It's not the Dean Bible gen, generic one. So yes, I did get it. I wanted to send uh, this email to encourage you in the work of your ministry that God has given you for your life's work. It appears to me from here in St. Joseph, Missouri, that a famine of the Word is sweeping over the planet and is growing more pronounced with every year that passes. Your internet ministry with its videos, audios, and transcripts are like an oasis for the teaching of God's word in a church desert stripped bare by the spirit of this age. I always, I also want to acknowledge Barb Apple for all her help, and Barb has done a lot to help him get videos and other things, but there's a whole team. I'm not reading this because um, I'm patting myself on the back. I'm reading this because Barb does a tremendous job. She really helps. Connie does a tremendous job. There are a number of other people who work behind the scenes doing transcripts, working on the Internet uh, website. There's a new website coming out any month now. Uh, it's going to have a lot of features. The other one didn't have a lot of ability to pull together transcripts and uh, uh, recordings uh, based on what you want to study, based upon topics. They're topically and uh, verse indexed. So you can just type in the verse that you're interested in and pull up where uh, we've taught that. So there are a lot of people who do a lot of things. I do the teaching, but it wouldn't get out there if it weren't for a host of people who do many, many other things. And they are often unsung, and they need to all be uh, recognized at times for all of their, uh, all the time they give and volunteer and helping out with the ministry. He goes on to say, I can assure you that God is magnifying the teaching ministry that he's given you to equip his people for the changing of lives and spiritual growth of believers. Your teaching has serious implications for the life of the believer, both here in time and for the believer's inheritance at the Bema seat. Along with the Apostle Paul, you will one day say, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. 
I have fought a good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown resulting from righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me at that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You feed the flock which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fades not away. Thank you. And I appreciate getting emails like that. It's great encouragement, and it's good that every now and then somebody expresses that. We're going to get into an interesting section today, Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 13. And in Romans chapter 9, 6 through 13, the Apostle Paul is addressing an issue that is often taken to be personal salvation as a result of God's uh, specific individual election of some to salvation and and um, and some to perdition, otherwise known as double predestination. But before I begin, I want to go over a few things. Just give us a little bit of context of the book of Romans, a little bit of context. Just by review, because the last few weeks we've focused on Romans 1, I mean Romans 9, 5, dealing with the great statement there about the deity of Christ. Let's just go back and look at the organization of Romans to understand our context a little bit. Under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, Paul wrote this epistle. So it is from his personality, his background, his knowledge, but it is God the Holy Spirit who is overseeing and superintending what he is writing so that without overriding Paul's personal style or his uh, background or personality, he is, he, the Holy Spirit makes sure that what he writes is without error. So he writes the, the epistle to the Romans as a vindication, explanation of vindication for the righteousness of God and how God treats sinful human beings by providing a redemption that is based on gr- grace through faith alone in Christ alone. The key verse in Romans it's often cited as Romans 16, 1.16, where Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it, that is the gospel, is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And then he goes on in the next verse to say, For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. First faith is faith at salvation, I believe, and the second faith is ongoing faith rest drill in terms of the spiritual life. So the righteousness of God is a critical element in understanding this book. That phrase, the righteousness of God, is a phrase that is somewhat under under debate today, and I want to address that a little bit now in terms of this overview as we get ready to focus down on Romans 9-6, but also because it's going to come up a lot, especially at the beginning of the next chapter. So in 1-18 to 5-21, Paul is relating Israel to the righteousness of God and justification. What he says about the righteousness and justification applies to all Jew and Gentile alike. He's not simply just zeroing in on on uh 
Jews. He's talking about both Gentiles and Jews. But as he is dealing with this, he is focusing on how the righteousness of God relates to Israel in terms of justification. And by righteousness of God, we must continue to understand that this is talking about God's intrinsic character, his uh, ethical purity, we might say, his rightness. And he is right not because he conforms to some standard, some external standard of rightness. He is righteous because that is, he is the he is the barometer. He is the ultimate measuring stick. He is the ultimate standard by which right and wrong are evaluated. So in 118 through 521, the focus is on God's righteousness and how he justifies human beings by faith alone in Christ alone. Then we saw in 6.1 through 8.17 how Paul relates Israel to the righteousness of God and sanctification. He talks about the believer, but Israel, he deals with the law, and he deals with how the law did not truly sanctify. Uh, the law was good. It's from God, but it doesn't provide for sanctification. Then in 8, 18 to 39, uh, Paul will relate Israel to the righteousness of God and glorification, but as he concludes, as we have studied at the end of Romans 8, verse 38 and 39, Paul said, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But somebody who's Jewish, ethnic Jewish in the audience, Christian, maybe, maybe not, might raise his hand and say, well, wait a minute, God seems to be setting aside Israel right now in favor of this new thing, the church, doesn't that indicate that God hasn't been, uh, uh, God is no longer going to be uh, faithful to his promises? And so now what Paul is going to do is relate Israel's place in God's plan to God's righteousness and its vindication, that God's faithfulness, what we're going to see is God's faithfulness is the outworking of his character. His, his righteousness is not identical to his faithfulness. The reason I say that, and I've pointed this out a few times, and this is part of uh, my responsibility as a believer, uh, I mean as a pastor, to warn you about certain things that are going on today. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul is returning on, uh, actually, he's on his way to Jerusalem at the end of his third missionary journey. And he stops in Miletus, and he says he has a meeting with the leaders in the church in Ephesus, the pastors in the area, and he says to them in verse 28, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. Now, that word take heed means to watch, to observe, to be careful, to watch over a group to take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. This has to do with being in a position of authority and administration and oversight to shepherd. There's a second word you have 
Uh, earlier they're called elders. That's one word that is used to describe the role of pastors emphasizing their spiritual maturity. Then you have the word overseers, episkopos, which emphasizes their authority over the congregation. And then the next word is the verb, uh, uh, poimino for shepherding or pastoring the church of God. So all three terms are used in this passage, which shows how the, the weight of what he is saying. He says, God has made you overseers. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd or to guard, to lead. Uh, that's part of the function of a shepherd was to guard the flock from uh, external enemies to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And then Paul says in verse 29, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, that is, and these men are clearly believers, from among yourselves men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch... And remember, uh, for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So one of the things, one of the roles of the pastor is not only to instruct, but also to warn and also to inform in terms of this kind of a warning. Now we've had a, I've mentioned this a few times in the past, there's a growing influential theologian in England, Anglican now, used to be a bishop. Now he's teaching um, theology. He used to be the bishop of Durham. He's moved on. His name is N.T. Wright. Most people call him Tom. But since we have our own dearly beloved Tom Wright, we don't want to confuse anybody by thinking that I'm calling Tom a heretic. So I'll just refer to him as N.T. Wright. And N.T. Wright is often N.T. Wrong. And we're going to see that. Now, it's interesting how in the providence of God, certain things sometimes come together. As most of you know, on Friday mornings, I have a group of pastors, and we get, we've gotten together off and on, mostly on, for the last five or six years. We've done Bible study methods together. We've studied Greek together. We've studied through various theological issues together. And it's, it's a very good time of fellowship. Mike Smith from uh, Brenham comes in, Orlando. Uh, there's usually um, uh, two or three others from the air, David Dunn. There's others who get online. We've now got a much more sophisticated uh, <clears throat> program to use, and we have pastors from Tucson to Preston City who get online. And, and with this better program that we've had, we've had more participation, and we've had as many as 10 online. And just just during this summer, tomorrow, I think we're going to have even more because of the topic. We're, we've been studying a book written by Jody Dillo, Joseph Dillo. Some of you are familiar with an earlier work of his called Reign of the Servant Kings. That earlier work was very good in many areas. There were some areas which I did not agree with, some areas I was critical of, because I don't think Dillo is as consistent in his dispensational hermeneutics as he should be, and that shows up even more in this book. And I say that because there are a lot of pastors and pa- and young men or men who want to be pastors who listen to me, and that is one part of my reading list. Reign of the Servant King still is. It's still, in my opinion, uh, the best overall single-volume theology of the free grace gospel. A lot of tremendous information there. 
But we always have to learn, as we will in our Bible study methods class, that we have to read anyone with discernment, even Lewis Berry Chafer, even Robbie Dean. You know, I know I taught things 10, 15, 20 years ago. I'm not sure I agree with anymore. In fact, I know there are some things I don't agree with anymore because there's such a thing as growth in maturity that takes place on the part of a pastor. And any pastor who 10 years later believes exactly the same thing he taught before isn't growing. He hasn't, or he's not honest, one or the other. And so, um, I, I, and I do a read, have a reading list for guys to, to read and others who can get it off the internet. And Dillo's book is there because it is very good in the way he handles many problem passages. A lot of his work in Hebrews is very, very good. Uh, some of his work in the Old Testament and on inheritance and rewards is just, just excellent. He is a good, critical thinker, but he has some flaws. And uh, I think that in this new book that he's got out, which is a revision and expansion of the original Reign of the Servant Kings, has some real holes in it. It's 300 pages added to the original, but it's not just added, it's expanded. Some of his views have modified and changed. And as we were getting into a chapter uh, that he calls Messianic Salvation, where he deal, begins to deal with Romans 9, 10, and 11. Now you're going, oh, now we know what this is all about. As we got into that, uh, he is going through uh, his uh, explanation of this, of this section, and he covers it about three or four chapters. But at the beginning, he starts to deal with this term, the righteousness of God. And as I'm reading through about the fourth or fifth page, I guess this was maybe last Friday morning. I was running late. I'd had a busy week with out-of-town guests and hadn't had a chance to really do this extra reading. I started a paragraph where he says that regarding the term righteousness of God, he's basically following the uh, teaching of N.T. Wright. Now, Wright has a lot of problems. First of all, he's not dispensational. Second, he's Anglican. Third, he holds does not hold to a distinction between Israel and the church. And fourth, he has a distorted view of Judaism in the first century, which causes him to want to redefine and reinterpret the entire book of Romans. Now, a lot of times we look at people like this and we go, pish tosh, you know, we don't want to pay any attention to them. They're really, uh, you know, we don't want to listen to them. But we have one doctrinal pastor up in the Northeast who about eight or ten years ago came, started reading N.T. Wright and came completely under his sway, and the whole church shifted over a period of four or five years. Now they hold to preterism, which is the view that all prophecy was actually fulfilled before 70 A.D., and they no longer hold to any form of dispensationalism. They've gone into various uh, other aspects of Wright's views on justification even, which are... Uh, somewhat erroneous, if not heretical. And one of the young men trained by that pastor became pastor of a doctrinal congregation in Corpus. And we have members in this congregation, some, one of whom at least is sitting here in, today, not in here, but in the church, and has relatives who are in one or the other of those churches. We have several people in this congregation who know people who are in either of those congregations as well as some others. So the camel's nose is way under our tent. 
So this it may not be something that's scratching an itch you have, but it is scratching an itch that we all have. It is affecting us whether we recognize it or not, and we need to be doctrinally perceptive. And a lot of times people just aren't because they don't... They're too busy, you know, studying the truth, focusing on the spiritual life, and not hearing about the icks, acts, and spasms that are going on in the broader uh, stream of Christianity. But this is this is definitely uh, definitely one of them, and so we have to understand this. And I'll be talking about it more and more. What N.T. Wright basically says is the term righteousness of God is just a code word for God's covenant faithfulness. And every time you read the righteousness of God, what you ought to read is God's faithfulness to the Abrahamic covenant. Now, the righteousness of God is a term that refers to God's intrinsic character, who God is. God's faithfulness, God's actions is a re, are a result. His actions are a result of his character. What N.T. Wright and others are doing is they're trying to redefine a lot of things. And ultimately, one of the motivators in this group, and they're called the New Perspectives on Paul, and this started back in the 80s, and it's gained in some momentum. And and one, they're very influential. I've heard N.T. Wright. Some of you remember about two years ago, I went to an ETS, that's an Evangelical Theological Society meeting, in Atlanta, uh, simply because the focus was on justification and the righteousness of God, and N.T. Wright was one of the speakers. And I like to go hear people and and read what they have to say, and understand exactly from from the and it's hard to follow him. This guy's brilliant. He has a wonderful, deep voice with a rich, melodious British accent. And Americans just think anybody who speaks with a British accent just must be telling the truth. And he is brilliant. He is a product of uh, he. I think he went to Oxford or Cambridge, but he's a product of that incredible British education system. And this guy can quote church fathers. He can quote from all the rabbis. He can quote them in the original languages off the top of his head. His education, he, he forgot more about theological studies by the time he was 20 than most of our pastors ever learned. And that's a tragedy. Back in the day, up in, before World War II, it was important for pastors to be well-educated. In my first church, I'm telling a lot of stories today, but they do have a point. In my first church, it was down in Lamarck, Texas, the pastor who had been there from 1933 to 1973 sat about the third row back all the way on the left, almost kind of where Jim's sitting tonight. And, uh, and oh, Harry Birch was about 83 or 84 years old then, but he was ordained. He'd gone to Moody Bible Institute, then Austin Theological Seminary, and he was ordained in, by the Southern Presbyterian uh, denomination in the, in the early 30s, and his pre-ordination exams were incredible. He had to read, translate before the ordination committee a passage they would choose, Greek and Hebrew. And he had to pass written theological exams. And he had to demonstrate that he truly understood the scriptures and that he wasn't just dependent upon what somebody else said, but that he could open up the word and at least read the original languages and new Greek and Hebrew as well as, as theology. Well, we have people today who, who think that they can get that kind of an education by getting on the Internet. 
There are some things you can learn that way, survey courses, church history, things of that nature, but I don't understand how you can truly. Now, th- some things are changing a little bit with some of the, like, I think GoToMeeting software has some real potential for uh, people who are spread out because it's real time. There's no lag in the audio or the video. And so it's almost like everybody's right there together in the same room. And that's, that's a real improvement. But language study and exegesis, and there's a dynamic that occurs when men come together and after class they go to the campus coffee shop and they argue between them over the different points that the professor just made and it helps sharpen their thinking, helps them to, to understand what was, what was lectured on better and, and they get a chance to uh, truly dig into what's re- what they've learned and not just repeat it on an exam. Uh, theological education is a training in how to read and how to think. And you can't really learn how to read and how to think sitting at your desk, looking on the Internet, without somebody telling you, you read that wrong, F. Why didn't you say this? Why didn't you say that? Somebody's dripping red all over your papers and telling you, you may love these ideas, but you are in love with an adulterous woman. These ideas are all wrong. And you can't learn that in the way a lot of people think, oh, and, and it's amazing, and as a someone who's taught in Bible college, it's amazing how many people who think they go into Bible college and seminary just, oh, it's like going to Sunday school. First day you were a student at Dallas Seminary, you suddenly realize there's a whole level of studying the Scripture that you never dreamed about. Okay, so there has to be this kind of teaching and training. Well, we're getting into this, and what's interesting is Monday night we had a, a conference call with the board of Chafer Seminary, and I just mentioned to them because we were using this go-to-meeting technology uh, that we were using that on the Friday morning meeting, and I also mentioned that we were reading Dillo's book. That got Charlie and Mark Musser and David Rosen, who, well, David found out later, but in Clay Ward and some others who are on the board really interested. So we're going to have even more guys this week. And I, it was an interesting observation. And I'm not saying this to run down the guys who didn't have a full seminary education. This is not a point about what they didn't do. It's to challenge whoever's listening out there that you've got to go for the gold, for this platinum, and not just for uh, being able to get by. What's interesting is as we've had ongoing email interchanges about the problems of N.T. Wright's theology, not all the seminary-trained guys have stepped in because a lot of them don't know enough about him to say anything. But I have noticed that only the seminary-trained guys are capable of doing the kind of work to critically evaluate N.T. Wright. That doesn't mean you always, these are not, these are general generalizations. One of the greatest critical thinkers I know is sitting over here is Jim Myers, and Jim didn't go to seminary. He did go to Moody Bible Institute. He didn't learn critical thinking skills there. I don't know where he learned them. But that's one of the things I love about going over to Kiev every year is the times that we have together to really sharpen one another. Anyhow, we have to learn these things. I have to protect you, so we're going to just kind of set this up real quick before we get into uh, our studying Romans. And um, then the last part of Romans, Romans 12.1 through 16.27, Paul relates Israel to the righteousness of God and its practical application. Now, in this outline, I'm not giving you everything related to 
the, the, the outline, everything that Paul is saying. I'm simply pointing out that in each section, Paul relates something about his, the righteousness of God to Israel in justification, in sanctification, in the glorification of God, and in the vindication of God's righteousness with reference to his plan and purposes for Israel, since it appears that Israel is being set aside for the Gentiles, this new thing called the church. Now, one last thing I wanted to point out about N.T. Wright before we move on is a, a paper. David Rosen knew about this, pulled it up, sent it out this afternoon, and it's a paper by Dan Wallace. Now, I don't always agree with a lot of things Dan has to say. Dan was a classmate of mine, and he's gone on to uh, stellar international recognition as a textual critic and has done some good things there and, and discovered a lot. His organization's discovered a lot of manuscripts in the, uh, in the old uh, Eastern Roman Empire that have been sitting uh, hidden away for years. In fact, you can't say anything about it because of publish, publishing contracts, but he has a book that is going to be coming out, published by TNT Clark, which is a well-known Scottish uh, imprint, where he is going to be describing the fact that they have recently discovered, and he's going to lay out all the evidence to support it, a fragment of the Gospel of Mark that dates to the first century. That's fabulous. That is, that's just incredible. So Dan's done some good things. I don't agree with some of his, he's a progressive dispensationalist. He trends a little bit too much to lordship salvation. But when he deals with N.T. Wright, and I didn't have time to read through everything, but his conclusions were pretty good. And in his conclusion, he says this. This is something that we should be aware of. What Wright has done is to pick up on a minor theme that is necessary for Paul's argument that all people are sinners and in need of salvation. See, what Wallace is saying is the main point in Romans is everybody's a sinner and in need of salvation, but the righteousness of God is not the main point. It's a sub-point to prove that. And he's turned that minor theme into the theme of Romans. His language is strong, even full of hubris at points, and that is his, that is, uh, uh, Wall, I mean, excuse me, well, uh, Wright's view of the righteousness of God. He's, his, and it's very nuanced. It's covenant faithfulness. So he misdefines it. Uh, I do think righteousness of God is a major theme of Romans, but not in the way uh, that, that Wright has said it, and that's what Wallace is pointing out. Uh, even full of hubris at points, but the, this pounding of the pulpit by Wright does not alleviate the problem that his vision of Paul's doctrine of justification, as attractive and coherent as it is, does not adequately deal with the text. Now, that's just a great insight. That critique can be made of a lot of pastors I know. They have great theological systems, but they don't adequately deal with the text. And we have to be text-based in whatever we say. Wallace goes on to say, coherent arguments are made all the time about this or that aspect of the Bible's teaching. That's a brilliant observation. A lot of people think that, oh, that makes so much sense. He must be right. No, just because somebody's argument is coherent and seems logically consistent doesn't mean it comes from the text. Wallace says coherent arguments are made all the time about this or that aspect of the Bible's teaching, but when they don't match what the text says, then they must be rejected. 
I would view Wright's synthesis of Romans as a brilliant failure. Brilliant because of how coherent it is, but a failure because it sits three feet above the text at all points. I can't tell you how many people in their theologies do that. They sound so good, but they're really about two or three feet off the text. They're not dealing with what the Scripture says. We're going to see that a little bit tonight in terms of our study on election and Jacob and Esau. It's a failure because it sits three feet above the text and at all points where it would be inconvenient to wrestle with what the text actually says. In this respect, Wright's view simply cannot handle the inconvenient truth, to borrow a phrase from Al Gore, that Romans is. See, Wright and his new perspectives on Paul people come along and say, Paul, I mean, uh, Christians have misunderstood Paul's critique of the Jews. It wasn't that they were trying to earn their way to heaven. It's that, that they, they didn't quite understand that, that the ritual had ended. As far as N.T. Wright and the others are concerned, the moral ethical observance of the law for the Jews is adequate for salvation. He redefines the works of the law, redefines the righteousness of God, and there are just hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, this guy is really developing a cult following. And we see that this has got, you know, the N.T. Wright camel's nose has gotten under even our tent. Okay, let's look at the um, setup here, the immediate context in Romans 9. Romans 9, 1 through 5. Romans 9, 1 through 5, Paul says, I tell the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish... That I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who were Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Okay, that's from the New King James. I retranslated that, or reordered the phrases there, 9-5. Christ came, the eternally blessed God, who is over all. Amen. Stronger, an extremely strong affirmation of the deity of Christ. Now, a couple of things to note. When Paul starts to talk about the Jews here, let me see, I'm backing up too much. Okay. In 9.3, I wish I could, uh, I could wish that I myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren. Pop quiz time, everybody. Is that a singular or a plural noun, brethren? It's a plural. Okay, he's dealing with a group. My countrymen, singular or plural? Plural. According to the flesh, who are Israelites, singular or plural? Plural. Uh, Who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, whom also is plural, uh, pertain the adoption, the glory of the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom, so plural, the fathers, from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came as overall. I'm making that point because Paul is emphasizing the Israel, the Jews, as a corporate entity. Now, this is difficult for some people from a uh, Democrat-oriented culture to understand the emphasis on the corporate nature of the body of Christ or the corporate nature of Israel an emphasis on both 
Israelites as individuals and individual salvation or justification, as well as the salvation or deliverance of the nation as an entity. Now, when we talk about the salvation or, or deliverance of the nation, we're not talking about the nation going to heaven. We're talking about the nation finally conforming to God's plan and purposes by, by the nation accepting Christ as Savior. Now, when Jesus came at the first advent, let's think this through a little bit. This is going to be foundational to understanding the next two chapters. When Jesus came, there was an announcement to, to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was the message of John the Baptist, the message of Jesus, the message of his disciples. Many individuals responded to that. Uh, <clears throat> we're told in the Gospels that people came from all over the country to go down and hear John preach, and, and many, many thousands were baptized as an indication that they believed in John's message. Many thousands believed in Jesus as the Messiah. However, the leadership and the who are the corporate representations, representatives of the nation rejected Jesus as Messiah because the, of that corporate rejection by the leadership of the nation, the nation was viewed as an entity as having rejected Jesus as Messiah. There were hundreds of thousands of Jews that were, or probably tens of thousands of Jews that were saved individually. But the nation was destroyed and went out under discipline in A.D. 70. Flip it to the end times. In the end times, you're going to have tens of thousands of Jews living in Israel who believe in Jesus as the Messiah and who respond to his warning in Matthew 24 that when you see these signs occur, flee to the mountains immediately. Don't go back home. Don't pack a bag. Uh, just leave immediately. Go to the mountains and hide, and God will protect you. So halfway through the tribulation, when they see the abomination of desolation, when the Antichrist sets up his uh, idol to be worshipped and the, and the temple declares himself to be God, then these people are going to go, this is what Jesus is talking about. I'm going to do what Jesus said. I'm going to leave. Well, unsaved Jews aren't going to say, I'm going to do what Jesus said. They're not even going to know what Jesus said. So the, P, the Jews that are believers, they're already individually justified, are going to hit the road and head to the hills. After this group leaves and departs and goes to hide themselves in an area across uh, the Dead Sea in the uh, southwestern part of Jordan uh, today, near probably near Petra, ancient Basra, as indicated by the prophets, there, as an entity, as a corporate group, they will call upon the Lord to save them. This is what we, where we're going to end up in Romans, uh, at the end of Romans 11. And thus, and in this manner, all Israel, that is true Israel, will be saved or delivered. It's not talking about justification there. It's talking about that corporate deliverance when Israel as a nation finally turns as a whole and says, Jesus, come and save us. And then the Lord returns. That's going to be right before the battle of Armageddon, deliver them. And we go into the end of the tribulation period. So, this is the difference between corporate and individual salvation. Paul is talking about the corporate group here. He's not talking about individuals. And the reason I say that is because when we get to this next little section, starting in Romans 6, uh, or 9, 6, and it talks about the fact that, uh, that God has, uh, when we get down, by the time we get down to, um, 
verse 13, Jacob I loved and Esau I have hated. This is not talking about personal individual justification. Jacob and Esau in context represent the nations that came from them. It's corporate entities that we're talking about here. This passage has nothing to do with individual justification. It has to do with God's choice in selecting certain people groups for certain destinies in history, not their eternal destiny. So we get into Romans 9, uh, 6, and we read, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. And so we can diagram it this way, that there is one large group, Israel, that is made up of everyone who is an ethnic descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what makes someone Jewish as opposed to someone who is not. If you were a descendant of Abraham, like Ishmael, but not of in the line of the seed, or Esau, who was not in the line of the seed, you're still a, a descendant of Abraham, or in the case of Esau, Abraham and Isaac, but that doesn't make you Jewish. The Jewish line ran from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what makes you Jewish. Not one of the, uh, not a descendant of Ishmael. Uh, Abraham, after Sarah died, married Keturah and had other sons. Uh, it's not one of those descendants. It's only the line uh, through through uh, Isaac. I mean, yeah, through through Isaac. Now, when the text says it's not that the word of God has taken no effect, that word there in my um, in my New King James is not capitalized. It's not talking about the Bible there. It's talking about the promise of God to Abraham. In you, my seed will be named. That's the promise of God. That's going to this line of the seed is going to come through Abraham. Remember back in Genesis 3.15, God told the serpent that the seed of the, the, the serpent will be at enmity with the seed of the woman. Now, the seed of the woman is a really strange term. The Greek word for seed is sperma. That's not associated with women. That's associated with the male. But the seed of the woman is emphasizing the, a male descendant from the woman, from Eve. And it's emphasizing in... in uh, uh, some of the older pre-Christian Jewish uh, interpretations, there was, seems to be an indication that they knew there was something special about a particular woman. And that's why in Isaiah, the prophecy in Isaiah 7.14 is, Behold, the virgin. There's an assumption there, the particular woman uh, is indicated there. So you have this seed, this seed terminology that goes through Genesis. We've studied this that those genealogies are not there to put you to sleep at night or back to sleep in the morning when you're trying to read your Bible. They're there to trace the lineage of the Messiah all the way back. So you have the seed of the woman going through uh, the third son mentioned of Adam and Eve, Seth, and going down to Noah, and then through Shem, uh, down through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then through Jacob's son Judah all the way down uh, through Jesse and David all the way down to eventually to Jesus. And you can trace that whole lineage of Jesus all the way through these genealogies all the way down to Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 1. 
And so the promise of God is is what's being referred to here, the promise of God, and there's doubt about this. And and it, it, among some Jews at this time when Paul writes is is God going to forget about us? Has God breached his promises? Has he broken his word to us? And so um, Paul is saying, no, he has not broken his word just because there is a defection among ethnic Jews to the truth. Not all Israel, not all ethnic Israel is true Israel. True Israel are those who are not only ethnic Jews, but also regenerate. They have to be regenerate. This is the whole point of Jesus is making to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, that unless a person is born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. Uh, Jesus is emphasizing that importance of personal regeneration that comes when a person believes that Jesus died on the cross uh, cross for their sins. It's not a result of their performing certain moral ethical acts in life, which is what um, what the Jews thought, what the Pharisees thought, that if you lived a good enough life, you followed the, the rituals, the Mosaic law and the traditions, then if you then you would be good enough to uh, see the king the messianic kingdom. And so what Paul is saying is that most is it not all uh, Israel is Israel and that means that there's only a true regenerate group that is referred to sometimes as as the remnant. So he says it's not that the word of God has taken no effect. Notice in English there's a double negative there that cancels each other out. In other words, what he is saying is, by saying it that way, it's for emphasis, so it gets our attention because it's unusual to see a double negative. The word of God has taken effect. That's his emphasis here. It's not that it hasn't. It has. It has had a powerful impact. And he says, for uh, we see this in the principle that all Israel is not Israel. And he goes on to say in verse 7, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. That's what I mentioned a minute ago. Ishmael, Esau, they're from the, from the line of Abraham, but they're not from the line of the seed. The sons of Keturah are not from the line of the seed. It's the line of the seed that is uh, important. And this goes from Isaac on down through Jacob. And this is what he cites in verse 7. In, in uh, Isaac, your seed shall be called. So God has made a choice. He made a choice when he selected Abraham. He's not selecting Abraham to be justified. Genesis 15, 6 says that Abraham was justified by faith. So he's not, God isn't selecting Abraham to be justified. He's selecting Abraham among other believers at that, that time. Probably Job lived at the same time of Abraham. Certainly Melchizedek uh, was a believer who lived at the same time as Abraham. And so there were other believers at the time. And God is choosing Abraham for a special purpose in human history, that God is going to work in and through Abraham and his descendants to reveal himself to the human race, to give them the privilege, the custodianship of Scripture, to record and preserve what God uh, inspires the prophets to write, so that that is uh, provided. Ultimately, the seed is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So in Romans 9, 8, Paul says, that is those who are the children of the flesh, that is those who are simply ethnic, physical, ethnic uh, Israelites, uh, those who are children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. Now there's a pernicious doctrine that came out of relig- 19th century religious uh, liberalism, Protestant liberalism, that we're all children of God. It's called the universal fatherhood of God. We're all, let's just all hold hands in kumbaya and go home. That's that's the idea. That's out of pure pure liberalism. We're all just God's children. We are all, as I pointed out in talking about Acts 17 the other night, in only one narrow sense are we children of God, and that is that we're all in the image created in the image of God, and that we are all created by God. That's it. But we're not born children of God in a more spiritual sense. We're born spiritually dead. Jesus told the the Pharisees in uh, John chapter 8 that they were of their father the devil. They were not of their father God. They were of their father the devil. They were not regenerate. And so among the Jews, there are two groups, just as there are among Gentiles, those who are children of the flesh, ethnic, and and that doesn't mean that they are spiritually descendants of of, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the children of the promise, the promise, those who believe the promise of God, the messianic promise in the Old Testament, these are counted as the seed, that is, the descendants of Abraham. Now, there's a whole important discussion on the meaning of the word seed, but I'm just going to leave it basic here that that refers, it's a collective noun. In many cases, it refers to the whole of the group of descendants of Abraham, but in some places it's very clear it's a singular idea, and that's because of certain uh, pronouns and other terms that are associated with it. Now he defines the promise in verse 9. For this is the word of promise. Word of promise in verse 9 is another way of talking about the word of God mentioned in verse uh, verse 6 the word of the promise. This is the word of the promise. This is taken from Genesis 18:10 and 14, where God said, at this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. He says nothing about Ishmael's salvation or the lack of it in these passages. I want you to keep your place here, stick your thumb there, a piece of paper or one of the little ribbons in your Bible, and turn back to Genesis 18. We're going to go back and forth a little bit tonight. Go back to Genesis 18. And we see how God had promised with specificity here the coming of the seed. Now back in Genesis 12, God gives a preview of coming attractions, just like a good movie. You go into the movie before the movie starts, you get a little preview of some other movies. In this case, you're getting a preview of the coming story, just a little little teaser. And in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, we have a summary of the covenant that God is going to make with Abraham. He says, get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house. Go to a land that I will show you. So the part of the promise is going to relate to the land. I will make you a great nation, I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. So blessing is another part of this this covenant. 
And also the idea of seed, although the term is not mentioned here, the idea is present in the phrase, I will make you a great nation, his descendants. At this point, Abraham and Sarah are childless. So we see all three elements there, land promise, descendants promise, and uh, blessing promise. Now this gets expanded in Genesis chapter 15 when God actually makes a covenant uh, with Abraham. Uh, and promises that he will, and gives him spe- uh, specific promises related to the descendants and what will happen uh, in the future. And so God tells him then to bring a sacrifice in verse 9, and he brings a sacrifice. They cut all the animals down uh, the middle, lay them out for a sacrifice. Uh, Abraham is uh, protecting the animals. Vultures want to come and eat the dead flesh, so he's driving them away. And this went on most of the afternoon. He was so tired he had to take a nap. God caused a deep sleep to go upon Abraham. And while Abraham is asleep, God alone passed between the parts of the sacrifice. That shows that God alone is binding himself to the terms of this contract. Abraham didn't have a clue. He's taken a, uh, taken a nap. When God promised certain things to Abraham following that, but that's the, that's the actual uh, cutting of the covenant. Then in chapter 17, there's a sign given related to the covenant, and that is circumcision. And then in chapter 18, uh, God has come to, uh, to the terebinth trees at, uh, Mamre, and he is, uh, up here, this is down near Hebron, Hebron, and there he is, uh, tells them a little, something a little specific. They've been waiting about 20 years at this point for the uh, uh, coming of this promise, this promised child. And in verse 10, God says, I will, uh, um, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life, and behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself, which is a form of the word Yitzhak for Isaac, and so that's why he's named Isaac. She just scoffs at God saying this, and they got, this can't really happen. And uh, the God's response is, <clears throat> why did Sarah laugh? Verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. So he's basically saying in a year, she'll have a son. So God specified that that son would be born. The son would be called Isaac. Uh, the son would be called Isaac. Verse 10 of Romans 9 says not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man. Now, Rebekah is the wife of Isaac. So Sarah's born. I mean, Sarah gives birth to Isaac. Isaac grows up. It's time for Isaac to get married. So Abraham sent his servant, Eliezer, to go find uh, uh, go back to the, the Haran, where they were from, to the relatives, to find somebody who was a God worshiper that, that would be worthy of Isaac. And so he found Rebekah, and Rebekah is, like her uh, mother-in-law Sarah, barren for a while. All these, the matriarchs, uh, Sarah, Rebekah, and Rachel, 
all have a period of barrenness. This is to show that it is God who is working a miracle to bring forth birth. I've taught through the doctrine of the barren woman before. There are only six women who are, whose barrenness is made an issue of in the scriptures, and they all have to do with someone being born who is part of God's plan. You have the, the three matriarchs of scripture. You have Hannah, the mother of Samuel. You have Elizabeth, uh, and I left one out. You also have Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. But there's something that's being taught there, and that is that only God can bring forth life where there is death. It's teaching the principle of uh, regeneration and the principle that that uh, Israel, especially dealing with the, the three matriarchs, that Israel is, oh, the other barren woman is the mother of Samson, uh, that only Israel uh, that with the three matriarchs, that Israel is a miraculous birth of God. Now, the one we're looking at and the one we're going to deal with in verse 11 has to do with these two uh, children, these two sons that Rebecca is going to have. She's pregnant with twins, and before they're born, nor before they, are, they have done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to choice election. We'll get into the doctrine of the magnum bar a little bit here. Uh, the doctrine of uh, God's choice might stand not of works, but of him who calls. God has, And the argument here is that God has the right to choose whom he will use to fulfill his purpose. He's not selecting them for justification. He is deciding what the line of the seed will be through whom the Savior will come. It's national. In fact, what we learn in the passage in Genesis 25 is that that what God tells Rebekah is that there are two nations struggling inside your womb. Even there, he's not talking about them as individuals, but as the representatives of their descendants. And Romans 19.12 says, It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. This is God's plan, is that... Uh, Esau will be the older by just a couple of minutes, and he will serve the younger um, Jacob. And then it says, and Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now this passage has been distorted and misunderstood uh, many, many times as if this is a personal selection process. God is the one who's deciding who's going to be saved and who's not. And God, these are, these are terms of acceptance and rejection. It's not that God uh, hated Esau; He didn't select Esau for His plan. But we'll, as we'll see next time when we come back and go through the Old Testament stories, Esau was blessed by God. So was Ishmael. Ishmael was richly blessed by God. I believe both Ishmael and Esau were believers. They were Old Testament believers, but God's plan wasn't for the seed to go through their line. It was to go through the line of Isaac and Jacob. And so for that reason, Ishmael and, and Esau are said to be, are, are said to be rejected. And it's not, this figure of, this is a figure of speech here, this love and hate is acceptance and rejection for a plan. It's like saying, um, a coach may say, well, I've got two good quarterbacks. I'm going to make this guy the first string. This guy's going to be sitting on the bench for a while. He's not kicking the second stringer off the team. He's just not the primary quarterback. 
And that's what God is doing here. He is selecting Jacob for a purpose. Now, we'll come back and look at this next time. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to reflect upon your word, to be reminded how diligent we need to be in an era today when there are so many uh, false teachers, there are so many who just don't understand the word, distort the word in so many different ways, uh, following different agendas that are not your agenda and that there are wolves that come in amongst the flock seeking to destroy. And they're disguised. They're not easy to spot because they come with uh, great-sounding words. They come uh, very articulate. They come very attractive in many ways, and many people follow after them due to the fact that they just don't know the word. That Just because we're not a pastor teacher doesn't mean we shouldn't exercise incredible discernment and develop those skills so that we can not be led astray by someone teaching uh, falsehood or heresy. Father, we pray that you challenge us with what we've studied tonight. In Christ's name, amen.